We've been studying the Passion Week. It's that last week of events leading up to Jesus' death on the cross, also known as Holy Week. And so we've, we've studied all of these different events leading up to what's possibly Tuesday or Wednesday, and it's Question Day. Well, I mentioned this last week that that, that last paragraph in chapter 11 and all of chapter 12, it's called Question Day because on this day, Jesus is back in the temple and a lot of the religious, the religious opposition is confronting him. He's colliding with them. There's kind of a showdown between all of these different groups that have different thoughts and ideas about Jesus and who he is and what he's, what he's taught in his ministry that is so wildly popular in Israel. And he gets to, to respond. So they question him. And then sometimes Jesus answers their question with a question. And then sometimes Jesus takes the, he, he takes the offensive posture and he uh, goes with a question towards them. And so all of these questions that we're studying is why this day is known as Question Day. And of all of these events, there's like six of them that we're working our way through. Of all of those questions, uh, all the Q&A sessions as we'll refer to them as, today's is stunning. I think today's, is, today's passage, today's question and what we're considering, for me at least, it's the most disorienting question of all of these confrontations. This moment in particular just will have a profound impact on how you think about your faith. If you've never read this passage before, if it's the first time you've ever considered this teaching of Jesus, it will likely shatter some of your beliefs. It will likely disorient what you think about life after death and what it means and what it will be like because we all have a ton of assumptions that we have ingrained in our brain and Jesus is about ready to blow it up. I mean, it, it, you just have to hang tight here because he's going to say some really challenging, challenging things. But, you know, this is why we go into the Word of God. When we grow up, no matter what culture, culture you grow up in, no matter what time period you grow up in, we, we grow up in a society, everybody grows up in some society that will build some assumptions about, uh, you know, faith and belief and life after death and those sorts of things. And so... Due to that, and all these different times and cultures and things like that, we, we develop a lot of things that are just wrong, that aren't biblical. And so it's our duty as Christians that when we are confronted with a belief that is clearly taught in Scripture, and it, and it, it doesn't agree with what I believed up to that point, that's, what, that's where repentance uh, kicks in. Repentance is a change of mind. It's, it's changing the way that you think about something. And so we go into the Bible to pursue this repentance that we're called to pursue, and we change the way we think to conform to, to the way God wants us to think. And so this, I guarantee you, if you've never considered this passage, you have some assumptions that are just wrong about life after death. And this passage is going to really challenge the way you think. It may be scary for you to think about some of these things. Um, but it, at the very least, it will be very challenging. So I just encourage you, you just got to take a deep breath, pray about it. We're going to walk forward together, lock arms as the church, and try to change the way we think about things so they can be more biblical. Okay, so let's talk about who's confronting Jesus today. 
up to this point, all of these different groups have collided with Jesus. The chief priests, those are the guys that carry out the the temple worship. The the scribes have confronted Jesus. Those are the experts of the law, like the lawyers uh, for the chief priests. The elders, those lay leaders in the temple, or the aristocrats, the nobles, uh, have confronted Jesus. And then last week we talked about the Pharisees and the Herodians even teamed up. We talked about how different those two groups taught or thought specifically, and how they normally would never be on the same team, but even the Pharisees and Herodians managed to team up against Jesus to try to trap him in a question. And today we have yet another group. We have the Sadducees. The Sadducees, and at this point you're thinking, how many groups are there? It's confusing. We start to lose track of who believes what and why they're in a different group and what makes them unique. And Well, here's the deal. Just like today, there's a lot of groups. There's a lot of people that think a lot of different things. You know, you, you walk down the street in Marietta, and you'll, you're, you'll hear people even complain about it. There's a church on every street corner. They all got a different name on the front of them. We don't need any more, any more churches, any more religious groups, and they all quarrel and disagree and things like that. And, you know, when, when people complain about the church like that, there's always a side of me that, I, I that kind of resonates with me. Oh, you know, they got a point. And then I get frustrated as a believer. Man, how are we ever going to believe the same things? How are we ever going to get on the same page? Well, this is where the authority of Scripture is so important, so vital to, to Christian life for it to thrive. If we want unity, the sense in which we gain that unity, according to Scripture, is in truth. Biblical truth. If we want to, The Bible instructs us to be unified in truth, right? So just... Like uh, today, there's all these different divisions. We, we, wanna, we should strive towards unity with the truth that God has given us. And that's, that's what's happening back in this day as well. There's some friction here between these different groups. And there's reason for some of those frictions and, and those disagreements and things like that. And, there, and there's going to be conflict because of that. But the word of God has to be what unites us all, right? You know, we don't like telling people that they're wrong. That's another, uh, that's, that's another annoying thing in our society today, you know, especially Christians will even criticize ever, other Christians for criticizing other Christians. <laughs> like, it's right, hey, stop being mean and saying that those Christians are wrong and these Christians are right. Why? Well, you shouldn't criticize, you shouldn't be so judgmental, you know, like you're using jun- judgmentalism <laughs> to, to tell me to not judge. It just, it just doesn't make any sense, right? And so we come up with these new phrases and things to, to try to make disagreements sound nicer, Right? In our, in our society today, we'll say, you know, that's, that's your truth and this is my truth. And, and, and when someone says that to you, well, you know, that's your truth, that's just not my truth, that's your truth. We think, well, oh, wait, that's, uh, that, that's so nice and reasonable and things. But when you think about it, you're like, hey, wait a second, they still, that's just a nice way of telling me that I'm wrong. Right? Because it really, when it gets down to it, every reasonable human being believes that there's right and believes that there's wrong. You can, you can doctor it up and make it sound as nice as you can, but it doesn't change the fact that we, we all believe in right and wrong, right? And so, that, now the Sadducees, they held some beliefs that other groups in Israel would say are wrong. And, and so let's take, let's take the Sadducees and the Pharisees, for example. They, those are two religious groups that repeatedly confront Jesus, but they don't agree on everything themselves. For example, the Sadducees had a tremendous emphasis on human free will. 
They, they overemphasized free will. Now, the Pharisees, they always pushed back onto that. They'll say, well, there's free will to a degree, but we're humans. We have limitations. And so the Pharisees would emphasize the sovereignty of God. And so the Sadducees and the Pharisees would collide there, and they would debate these things. Another example, the Sadducees, they denied the existence of angels and demons. But the Pharisees, they believed in the existence of angels and demons. And so they would collide and argue and debate these things. Here's another example. The Sadducees only saw the Torah or the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Old Testament. They only considered the Torah as the authoritative word of God. That was unique to them. The Pharisees would push back against that, and they would say, no, the Torah is authoritative, but also the writings and the prophets, or what we would consider the Old Testament, is the authoritative word of God. And then they would argue, and they would debate over those things. Here's another example. The Sadducees, and this is what we're going to cover today, the Sadducees denied any afterlife. They denied a resurrection. They would say, when you die, you die. The Pharisees pushed back against that. They didn't believe that. They believed that there was an afterlife, and they believed that there would be a resurrection and rest restoration of God's people. And so they would argue and they would debate about these things. So, of all of these issues, when you look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what you, re what you recognize, what's very clear is that Jesus, if you had to put him in a category, would without a doubt go into the Pharisee category. He had more in common with the Pharisees than he did the Sadducees. So think about how much Jesus has butted heads with the Pharisees up to this point, right? He is just cracking them in the head, headbutting them, and taking them on day after day. So, so what's going to happen when he interacts with the Sadducees? He has very, much less in common with the Sadducees than he does the Pharisees. And so they are really going to collide right here. And Jesus isn't going to say, hey, that's your truth, this is my truth. He's going to say, you are quite wrong in what you believe. Here are the facts. You are badly mistaken. And I'll tell you why. And so here we go. Here's question day. It's continuing in Mark chapter 12. We're going to take verses 18 through 27, but to get started, to get our bearings in this moment, let's, let's study this confrontation in verses 18 through 23, just to, just to get going here. It says, and, and Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and asked him a question, saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There, are, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seventh left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Okay, so did you notice what happened right out, right out the gate? Mark is describing this moment in which the Sadducees interact with Jesus, and he gives us one of those unique Sadducee beliefs up front. Here come the Sadducees. They're the ones that believe there will be no resurrection. 
So he kind of sets the table for us. And, and based on what we've learned about Jesus in the Gospel of Mark alone up to this point, we know Jesus is on board with a resurrection, right? So we know he is going to disagree with what they're about to say. And so they've come there to trap him. So the first thing that they do is they quote from the Torah. Why would they quote from the first five books of the Old Testament? Well, because that's the only books of this Old Testament that they consider to be authoritative. And so they build a scenario based off a teaching or law in the Old Testament. Now, if you want to go study that law in depth, as without a doubt you'll have more questions about it if you really think about it, you can read in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10, will articulate the law that they are referring to in the Old Testament. It's the law of leveret. That's a Latin word for brother-in-law. The law of the brother-in-law from the Old Testament. So here's what it said. And I'll, I'll just oversimplify what's taught in those five verses. So if you had a brother, right, and you were married, and you died, and you didn't have any kids yet, there was no, uh, you know, where, where, was that, where would that inheritance go? What's going to happen to your family line? Well, your brother would have to step up, and it would be his duty as a good law-abiding Jew to, to take care of your widow. And, and since you had no kids to take care of that widow, it's your responsibility to take her and to marry her, to keep all of the inheritance intact, to provide for her, and, and, and take care of your family. And so you ladies might be thinking, well, I'm sure glad I didn't live in that day, right? The thought of marrying your brother-in-law, maybe not uh, too exciting to you, <laughs> you know? Some of you are like, I'm pretty sure I'd just live off the land rather than marry my brother-in-law. Like, I just, I just can't, I'll just become Xenia Warrior Princess and, and fend for myself and just live off the land and, and do what I can. But in, in that day and age, this was a God-honoring good thing. It was a way that you took care of your family, and it was, a, it was thought of in a very positive sense, a very noble duty that you would do to, to provide for your, your family. So, with that belief in hand, with that common belief that the Sadducees have with any other Jew of that time, they build a scenario. Now listen, I don't know how many debates you've been a part of. I don't know how many debates you've watched. But if you want to dismantle someone's beliefs, and a tactic that is, old, is as old as time itself is to create a scenario that would challenge their belief. People haven't changed whatsoever. You create a scenario, and if you're being clever, you'll create the most least likely scenario possible. And, and, and again, you can think about whatever issue, whatever hot topic it is today, you can think of all of these scenarios that have played a role in debate after debate after debate. And, and so the tactic, again, it's, as old, it's, it's thousands of years old. If you create a, a least likely scenario but yet plausible, and you can get someone to stumble over what they believe because of your least likely scenario, you can then erase their belief in all scenarios. If they can't hold on to that belief here, then they can't hold on to it anywhere. And so trap set, right? So again, just pay attention to any 
debate that you watch, whether it be religious or political or whatever, those least likely scenarios always somehow manage to find, uh, 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 they're very useful anyway. So the Sadducees, they really go to an extreme in their scenario, don't they? Based on this law of Leverett, right, the brother-in-law law, based on what we know about that, Jesus, consider with us just for a moment, there were seven brothers. The first brother marries. He dies and leaves a widow with no children. Well, we all know the next brother would step up because he's a law-abiding Jew. And he would marry his brother's wife. But let's say the second brother dies. Don't stop there. They don't have kids either. And the third brother marries that lady. And then the fourth brother marries that lady. They're all, they're, they're, the plague is just taking its toll on the whole family. And they get to all seven brothers. They've all stepped up in a very noble way and took care of their sister-in-law by marrying her but failed to have any children. Well, Jesus, let's say they all meet again in the resurrection. Tell us, how awkward will that family reunion be, Jesus? <laughs> right? Who's she going to be married to? Can you imagine? You can almost feel the awkwardness Right? Whenever you try to imagine that scenario in heaven one day, we, we start to think about what heaven will be like just reading this. And you think you show up there and every person you used to be married to is there. Hey, guys, <laughs> what's going on? Good, good to see you, all of you. Pretty awkward, right? The trap is set. It's obvious. What's Jesus going to say? Now, so. When you've been watching one trap after another set here uh, from the end of chapter 11 through chapter 12, what you notice is that sometimes Jesus, when the trap is set, sometimes he, you know, like grabs a stick and sets off the trap and he's not in it. Sometimes he, when the trap is set, he maneuvers his opponents into the trap so they can trap themselves. You know, he, he manages to deal with his opponents in such a masterful way. And then there's times like this in which when he gets confronted with this trap, he just drops a nuclear warhead on the trap and just blows it up. That's, that's, that's what he's doing right now. When you read the way that Jesus responds to this trap, again, if you've never studied this passage, your mind is about to be blown. When you try to consider what Jesus is, even if you've already studied this passage, especially if you are married, <laughs> this passage is incredibly disorienting. But I challenge you to challenge yourself. Let's see what he says here in verses 24 through 27. How's Jesus going to respond to the scenario? Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of, he's not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Why does he say they're wrong in the first place? Here's how he begins. Let me tell you why you're wrong, guys. It's because you don't believe in the authority of Scripture. You don't understand scripture. You don't understand the power of God. Because to understand the power of God, you'd have to understand scripture. Where we're taught 
about the power of God. So these Sadducees, right, they're using the Old Testament, the Torah, to create this least likely scenario. But they're doing it in a way that would effectively refute the teachings in the Old Testament. They're trying to use a teaching to deny teaching, basically. And this is what has gotten Jesus so agitated right here. He's saying, you don't even know this. You don't know scripture. You know, it's, it's not that scenarios are always terrible to use. Sometimes talking about scenarios can be a very profitable discussion. And they can be useful in a debate. I mean, I don't want to deny that. But as believers, we have to be really, care- really careful as to how we use these scenarios. And so time and time again, I've had Christians, professing Christians, create scenarios to try to talk me out of clear teachings in Scripture. And so, of course, I've got to question that person, like, why are you trying to create all these scenarios to get me to doubt what is taught so clearly in the Bible? I mean, as, as, as believers, right, when, when we inter, inter, interact with, with other believers who also claim to, to love God and to love his word, if we have a point of dispute, an issue that we don't agree on, and we're just bringing scenarios to each other, Or, worse yet, if they bring scripture and I bring a scenario, who comes out the victor? Well, if I just bring a scenario and they're bringing scripture, I'm bringing a knife to a gunfight. Scripture is what's authoritative. Scripture is what carries weight. So again, these scenarios, it's not that building scenarios or discussing scenarios isn't profitable. But I just think you have to understand, when you're debating someone who's really creative, who's highly intelligent, if you're smart enough, you can always create a scenario to combat a scenario. If you can create a least likely scenario over here, over here that is at least somewhat plausible, well then I can just create another scenario on this side of the fence that's just as creative, just as you know, not likely but plausible that can combat your least likely scenario over there. And so sometimes I just think that when we get in the scenario versus scenario conversation, The creativity is just endless. But we as believers, we want to understand the power of God that is in the pages of Scripture. And so, again, we we need to use Scripture. We can use scenarios, but we use Scripture primarily to form what we believe so that we can repent, so that we can pursue God's way of thinking. And so, if that's what you believe as a Christian, here's an opportunity for you to put your money where your mouth is. Because I guarantee what Jesus has taught confuses you or disorients you into a way that tempts you to not believe what he's saying. When you really think about what Jesus just taught here, when you think about the afterlife, when you think about what heaven will be like, when you think about what life will be like in eternity after the final resurrection and judgment of God, when we walk into eternity forever, what do you imagine will take place there? I bet you what you imagine is largely built on assumptions that have been ingrained in your brain because of where you grew up and because of what you've seen on TV and what our culture thinks about what life will be, will be like after that. A lot of what people believe about the afterlife is built on wishful thinking. A lot of what people believe about the afterlife, it's just a combination of like the best ideas built on the, ex- the best experiences that I've lived out here on earth. We think, well, life and eternity, it'll be the best things I've experienced times a million. Well, okay, 
Well, we have to be careful with that, though. It's our, our duty to correct some of those assumptions with what Scripture so clearly teaches. And this first thing that Jesus taught really crushed a lot of my assumptions. There's no marriage in heaven. I don't even like that the first time I thought about it. I didn't like it. I don't like to think about there not being marriage in heaven. I, I like my marriage. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a disorienting thought for me to, to contemplate. Even as I'm crafting this sermon, and I've taught over this passage several times, every time I go to it, I, I can't help but be a little uncomfortable because when I think about the best part of my existence here on earth, it always involves Amanda. She's, she has participated in all of my best memories, all of my best experiences. And so I think it's reasonable then for us that when we try to imagine this perfect existence in eternity, we try to take these, the best experiences we're, we have lived out on this earth and we try to, to think of that eternity as a continuation of this life. When I get to eternity, it'll just be picking back up on where I left off, but just the good stuff. But that is an assumption that is incorrect. It's not totally true. It's the same assumption that the Sadducees had in this scenario with the seven brothers. And Jesus just blows up that assumption. This will not be, eternity will not be a continuation of this life as we know it. In the sense that there will be no marriage. There's no marriage and nobody's going to be given a marriage. Oh. Rather, we're going to be like the angels in heaven. Um, okay, now, point out. Note this, we won't become angels. We're, we're not going to be angels. We'll be like angels, though, in the sense that there's no marriage. They're not married. I think, there's some, I think there's another reasonable conclusion we can draw from that. We'll be like angels. Well, angels are identifiable. Angels have names. We think of the angel Gabriel we'll study about here as, we, as Advent season gets here. We're going to study, uh, or, or, or we think of uh, angels in, the, in Scripture like Michael, the archangel, and so, you know, it's reasonable to think that we're going to be like angels in this sense. We're going to be identifiable. I'm going to know you. You're going to know me. I'm Cody right now. I'll be Cody then. Hope you like your name. That's going to go into eternity, evidently. Here's what I think Jesus is ultimately teaching us, though, that, that about life after the resurrection. We're not going to lose our personhood. We're not going to lose our identity. As a matter of fact, being like angels, I think we're going to be the best version of ourselves we've ever experienced before. Um, so life at your best will pale in comparison to who you'll be in eternity. But I, I think what he's teaching here is that our existence there in eternity, it's going to be so superior to anything I've experienced here that even marriage pales into comparison to the relationship uh, experience that I'm going to have in eternity. It's a, it's a big deal. And Scripture does this multiple times. Like when we read in Revelation and John is teaching us about when Christ returns and, and ushers in eternity, how does he describe it? As a wedding feast. Because that's like the best experience. We, that's like the best experience I've ever had. My wedding day, my wedding was off the chain. If you went to my wedding, which none of you did, except my wife, it's, it was awesome. It's still the best wedding I've ever been to. It's the best time I've ever had in my life. That was a really good day. And so scripture uses that reality to my advantage. I'm trying to explain this concept over here to you, Cody. And so think about the best day of your life on your wedding day. Take that times a million, and that's going to be the experience there. It's just so superior there 
that you don't even need the institution of marriage in order to have fulfillment. It's mind-blowing, right? It's beyond what I can think of. I, I just, it, it blows my mind. But I trust in God, and I trust what his word says, and I, I believe him when he says it's going to be the superior existence. Okay, so Jesus, when he's talking to them, though, when he confronts them about uh, their belief in what happens beyond death, he, did you notice, he quotes from the Torah. Why would, he, why would he quote from the Torah? Man, there's so many places you go to in the Old Testament in the writings like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, talking about life and death. And, and there's so many places you go to in the, in the prophets. But there's also several places you can go to in the Torah. And so he chooses one of those intentionally, no doubt, because the Sadducees believe in the Torah. And he quotes the most famous passage in all of the Torah. This iconic moment in which Moses is communicating with God through this burning bush that is the most iconic moment in all of the Pentateuch. And he, he quotes from Exodus 3 saying, this is God saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He said, remember this moment here? You don't understand the scripture that well, so let me explain it to you. Remember this moment here when God declares who he is? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, speaking to Moses. Well, he's pointing out that he's not saying I was their God. He is their God. These are men that God has made covenants with. He has made promises to. And their promises are eternal. These covenants last for, forever. These men exist right now. So think about it this way. If Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were just ancient blips on the radar and no longer existed, well then why would we care about the promises that God made to them? What difference does it make? Who cares about those? They'd be irrelevant. And that's the point Jesus is trying to drive home to them. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong, he says. Another interpretation says, you are badly mistaken. You, there's wrong, there's super wrong, and then there's you guys. <laughs> Jesus is really trying to drive this home. And isn't it a tragedy? That, that it, what blows my mind about the Sadducees they rejected the greatest hope that I believe we get to live with. And they, and they, they rejected the reason for that hope. It's like the, the two best things we have that we believe, they rejected both of them. I mean, after death, right, this greatest hope is that this is not the end. That, that we will not just live this sinful, corrupt uh, you know, broken world existence and then we're done. Can you imagine if that was the truth? Can you imagine if, if we just live in a broken world with all of this frustration and all of these tragedies and all of this injustice and then we die and that's it and then within a couple generations no one even knows who you are ever again? That would be such a pitiful existence. That would be so depressing. I would be, I would have no hope. Like, what's the point? One of the greatest hopes that we have is that when we die, there is more. We were made in the image of God and his likeness in the sense that we will never cease to be. We will, we will always be. We will always have life. And in that life, we will have our, our identity. We will be individuals interacting with each other, knowing each other. But our relationships will be so much better than what they are here, that even the best relationship that I have here won't even, it'll, it'll even be better there. I, I don't need marriage anymore for that 
to bring fulfillment, for that relationship to bring me fulfillment. And that brings me more fulfillment than any other relationship, than any other human. Right? What a hope that we get to live with. Things will be more there, not less there. You know, it's often the case that I'll talk to people contemplating heaven one day, and they'll have doubts, and they'll worry, and they'll say things like this, and maybe you've thought this before too. I'm worried about eternity in heaven. If there's not marriage, will it be disappointing? If, if we're just on like clouds with harps and singing, singing praises, I love Amazing Grace, but I can only sing it so many times before I get a little bored with it or I lose interest. Like, I'm just worried that when I get to heaven, it's going to be boring. It's not going to be fulfilling because even the best things that we have here and now, I lose interest in and eventually don't fulfill me in the way that I would hope that they would. And if that's the way that you think, I would say this to you. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. God is the creator. That's what we learn in scripture. He's the creator. He's infinite. He is infinitely creative. And so if you think something in life and this life is good, well, you have God to thank for that. He created that experience. He created that possibility. And you have received fulfillment in that experience because of what he created. But he is infinitely creative. And so when we get there, if he came up with all of this, he's limitless, right? What's he going to come up with there? If it's that much better that the, that the authors in Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, are trying to get us to understand that by, by reminding us of, of the best experiences we have here, we have to believe that this is going to so far surpass anything we can come up with because God is infinitely creative. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 2, 9. He says, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. He's saying, you haven't seen it, you haven't heard it, your heart can't even imagine what God has planned for you there. It's going to be so superior to what you can come up with. And if you're worried it's not going to be good enough, you know neither scripture nor the power of God. It's such a tragedy that the Sadducees rejected that truth. But it's even more tragic that they rejected the reason for that truth. The reason we can have that hope is because of Jesus. That's the reason that eternity is attainable. It's because of Jesus. He, he died and he resurrected. He was in the grave three days and he resurrected. And when he resurrected, he had this new glorified body. They could tell it was Jesus just by looking at him. It touched his hands and things like, this is you. But he was in this new glorified, identifiable body. And this inaugurated the new way of life that we will experience in eternity. One day we will be resurrected just like Jesus was resurrected after his death. And we will have new glorified bodies. And we will get to live in an eternity that was prepared for us by him. Remember, that's what Jesus told his disciples before he died. He said he's going to depart. I will come back to you, though. And you will be with me. And you're going to be with me in a place that I'm preparing for you. It's scripture and it's the power of God that informs us of this hope. We have this hope, we have the reason for this hope, and we will never cease to exist. We will be with God forever because of Jesus, and neither death nor life nor anything else in all of creation, remember that in, in Romans, nothing's going to separate us from the love that God has prepared for us there. What a hope that we get to live with. 
No matter how bad life gets, no matter how hopeless any situation seems, no matter the injustice that we experience, no matter how unfair this world feels, no matter what's taken away from us, no matter what's you know, said to us in a harmful way or in a hostile way, any and all of those experiences, no matter our, any of our efforts that we just failed at, this broken world experience is not all that there is. There's more. We as Christians have a hope that there is more. It will be perfect. It will be better than anything we've experienced here. Take the best of what we've experienced, and it's even better than that. And Jesus is the reason we get to have that hope. So let's go with that heart. Let's go with that mindset as we walk into communion. That's how we remember Jesus is the reason I get to live with that hope. Jesus is the reason that that future is attainable because of his sinless life, because of his death on the cross. We will live in eternity with God and the love that he has prepared for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this difficult teaching. We thank you for these confrontations, Lord. I can't imagine just how even... Un, just how uncomfortable these moments must have been in the temple. Being a spectator, watching these men with all of this religious clout coming to confront you, trying to trap you, play games with you, trying to build scenarios. And, and Lord, thank you for the example that you set of, of pointing people back to your word. And Lord, help us to live like that, where we don't, only want to live with this hope, but we want to share this hope. And the way that we can do that, do that is by pointing people to your word. When we share your word with others, Lord, you promise that your word will never return void. It'll always accomplish what it sets out to accomplish, Lord. Help us as believers to be faithful in sharing that hope. Lord, I just pray that right now as we consider a time of communion, we would do so with a heart of gratitude. Lord, we don't deserve this amazing experience ahead of us. We've done nothing to earn this eternity free from sin. But Lord, you have gifted it to us through your son. Help us to take that heart of gratitude into a time of communion as we worship you today. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.